Our beer of the week this week is Juicy J from Legion Brewing here in Charlotte. Wanted to get another Oktoberfest, but didn't want to buy a 24-pack of bottles. So just going with an IPA tonight. Can't go wrong with a Juicy J. Uh, I'm Steven, your host, joined by Jacob LaCroix as my co-host. We have a special guest this week on Perfect Takes. It is Tej Seth with Sumer Sports. He's a data scientist for him, a Michigan alum, and a Detroit Lions enthusiast, some might say. Uh, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, no, appreciate you guys having me on. Love the the beer introduction there. You know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, but I haven't heard that. And, you know, I'm obviously big fans of, of what you guys do. So yeah, for everyone who doesn't know, um, I'm, I'm Tage Seth. I am currently a data scientist at Sumer Sports. And what Sumer does is is a roster optimization for NFL teams. And so I'm on the consumer side. So a lot of the public stuff you'll see from sumersports.com or the newsletter that we have or any of the articles that go up on the site is stuff that I do. But you know, I'm, I'm really pumped today to be here to, to talk ball with you guys. Absolutely. And you brought up Sumer Sports and kind of how roster optimization is what you guys kind of focus in on. You were also an intern with PFF. Kind of what are the two differences between those two organizations, you would say, like in a nutshell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so Pro Football Focus, PFF, they are really, really good about getting the data in the right place to do a lot of analysis with it. They chart basically everything that happens during an NFL game. They give grades and, and all of that stuff together. And then what Sumer does is now that we have the data available, it's all about can you take all this data that we have and put it into models that can help teams make roster decisions. So based on player evaluations and trades and what draft picks mean uh, versus like how much players are worth and all of that stuff is, is what Sumer specializes in. Very interesting. Uh, one last question before we get into the Lions-Panthers game. I know you, you have a published paper with Derek, er, I can't speak, Dr. Eric Eager uh, with linebacker biting distance. Um, is that the coolest project you've worked on? Is there something else that like you kind of rest your, your laurels on? <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks for bringing that up. That, that was a lot of fun to work on. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize how much work went into putting together a research paper. The probably the project like start to end was over a year in time in which we got the tracking data, um, you know, these, these massive data files where each player is tracked every 10th of a second on the field with X and Y coordinates and, and speed and all that stuff. We made the models and then we like, we spent some time writing our paper that ended up being around 20 pages and then had to submit it a couple times to the journal. And they would send back like CVS length uh, receipts of, of like things that they wanted us to change and and we would make those edits and then resubmit and just kind of did that process for a couple months until it got published so that was really cool to see it end up uh being being part of that journal now we'll get into the meat of it uh we we stumbled and by we i mean panthers uh stumbled out of the gate versus the detroit lions uh we won the coin toss elected to receive the ball <laughs> and it was all downhill from there uh any thoughts on kind of the overall game from you guys Mm -hmm. Yeah, from from the Panthers perspective, I think that because of the offensive line injuries and, and some of the youth that they're having there, like the, the Lions ended up being a pretty bad matchup for them in that sense. You think about Panthers-Lions last year 
where you guys were able to take advantage of our defensive line not being that strong and really establishing your will in the run game, running for you know over eight yards of carry in that game against us, uh, which which ended up leading to not being able to pass that much, but still being able to pass well. And then this this game was more of a, a reversal in that sense where the Lions defensive line, Aiden Hutchinson, Aline McNeil, um, some of the other secondary pieces that they have on the defensive line was able to take advantage of a Panthers offensive line that is still young and, and obviously has has injuries right now. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Going into this year, I know one of our concerns with the Lions was can their line hold up in the run game? And they've been able to do that pretty well, especially in this game. They just dominated the front and then more Frank Reich uh, antics, I'll say. I've ranted too many times about him. More of his antics showed up in the game and I think it was just downhill from the moment we snapped the, the moment we chose to receive uh, when we won the coin toss. I, I think the three turnovers played a huge uh, factor in that first half. I mean, we punted uh, David Montgomery rushed for almost that 50 yard touchdown kicked mm -hmm. it off a strong start for you guys, because you could impose your will, not only in the run game on Sunday, you were imposing in the passing game and it, it just didn't matter. You were slicing and dicing Evero's scheme. Um, we're, we're a little thin on the back end as well. So, and it, it, it was surprising. You had a Mon Ross St. Brown out, you had Jamar Gibbs out and you still dominated from start to finish on all three phases. Definitely. And I think that's like what the advantage that Ben Johnson as a play caller gives you. Steve, I know you have a lot of play calling metrics that you put out on Twitter that I, I love to look at. And Ben Johnson has consistently showed up pretty highly in all of them, usually like in that second tier of play callers behind the Shanahan read, uh, you know, kind of uh, upper upper tier. So like, I think, yeah, when, when St. Brown was out and when Gibbs was out, like I was a little bit worried about our offense in this game, but like how Ben Johnson was able to use a trick play to get to Sam Laporta, how he was able to scheme up David Montgomery on a, on a big workload where he was shouldering a lot of that, those carries. And then even like later in the game, when Craig Reynolds came in and started getting the majority of the carries, like I thought those were well-schemed runs as well. So it was like, it was a really cohesive play calling game from him using the two trick plays and uh, you know, getting into different runs and passes from those tighter formations that really you, like you mentioned, like the, the Panthers back seven is a little depleted right now. And he, he made a point of attacking that throughout the game. Absolutely. I definitely think uh, you guys got revenge for last year in the, the cold front, the coldest game in franchise history. Ironically, the Lions also were here for the hottest game in franchise history <laughs> in the preseason. But yeah, yeah you guys thoroughly dominated uh, a, a depleted defense. I liked uh, my guy Laporta. He was one of my rookie uh, guys to watch. He had a day. Even guys like Josh Reynolds were able to take advantage of mismatches. And it was just a, a thorough game, I'd say, from the Lions on both ends. I think one of the more fascinating points from like the Detroit Lions is that I, they've built their offensive line, which allows them to do whatever they want on offense. And I think that's not talked about enough. Like that's what we were trying to do here in Carolina. Obviously injuries, the Brady Christensen, Austin Corbett kind of derail a young growing offensive line. And it's it's sad because we're we're two franchise go, franchises going in different directions. We start 0 and 5 for the fourth time in franchise history, and the Lions are now 4 and 1. Which, believe it or not, from a percentage standpoint, teams that start 4 and 1 have a higher probability of winning the Super Bowl than teams that start 5 and 0. 
So I think it's like off by oh. like 0.5 <laughs> of a percent, but it mm -hmm. goes in the Lions' favor that they are a true NFC contender at this point in the season. So you heard it here yeah. first, Lions <laughs> Super Bowl win. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what he seems like he's saying. You know, I, I need to start looking for flights to Vegas here for the Super Bowl. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's... I, I don't know if I would necessarily say like the Panthers are going in like the opposite direction from like a future standpoint. I agree that these two seasons from the Lions and Panthers are probably converging. Like I'm still relatively optimistic about the Panthers just because they're so young, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but I do think that it's, it's a really exciting time to be a Lions fan like you brought up because this is really the first time where it's the Lions division to lose. You kind of think about the history of the division, or at least in, in my lifetime, where it was Brett Barb's Packers and Aaron Rodgers' Packers that were the division favorites the majority of the year. And then in years where it wasn't that, you had some pretty good Vikings teams, uh, especially led by Mike Zimmer's defenses. You had some some good Bears teams, like the Jay Cutler teams, that he could play well and the defense could could support him. The Lions really haven't had their moment to shine in this division. And it just so happened that a year where the Lions are ascending and one of the better teams in the NFC, all three NFC North teams are going through a transition phase right now. Uh, like we saw with the Packers on Monday night, like we've seen with the Vikings this year and, and now not having Justin Jefferson and obviously the Bears have their own problems. Yeah, going back to our predictions episode we made, I think the week before the season started, I was high on the Lions winning the division. I think I had like a nine and eight finish or something like that. But it looks like you guys are dominating. Like this could be a two seed, one seed, maybe even in the NFC if the Niners or the Eagles uh, slip up. Or we say the Cowboys, but they've already faced a, a tough game in the 49ers. Right. And yeah, that's that's what I think is like the really interesting thing is so when you when you kind of look at the divisions, like I think I think the 49ers have the inside track to get the one seed right now. Uh, you know, Eagles will probably be right there with them. Like the Eagles are up two games in the division already, with the Cowboys having the two losses. And so it kind of comes, you know, kind of it comes down to Lions versus the NFC South. Uh, you know that the Panthers are a part of, and like who's kind of going to split that that three four uh, game right there? Like Lions have a big game against the Buccaneers this Sunday. That that's going to go a long way in determining that if the Bucks end up being the division winners of the NFC South. So I think I think it's it's, it's weird to be thinking about Lions seeding like this early in the season, but it's somewhere in that two to four range that you would hope that they end up, which is pretty exciting for sure. That's the that game with the uh, the creamsicles, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that'll go a long way, like you said, determining that seating between probably the two and the four spot. And like you said, kind of pre-recording, it's exciting. You guys could host your first playoff game. And the way Jared Goff plays at home in Detroit, I mean, he's like vintage Peyton Manning sometimes in the <laughs> Dome. So you, you, you got some firepower there. And you haven't had this, like you said, for the majority of your lifetime spanning the 2000s to now what what was the moment that that spurred you on the B Alliance fan like what 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 was it Calvin Johnson was it Barry Sanders highlights was it bringing in Matthew Stafford like what was that uh, moment that you were like no I'm a Lions fan <laughs> yeah no, this is this is actually a pretty funny story so the first season that I remember like actually watching the Lions was 2008 so the infamous 0-16 team but I didn't really understand what was going on at the time I just knew that my grandpa and my dad 
really liked watching the Lions together. Like we would go over to my grandpa's house and we would watch the game with him. And like it, we, we'd have lunch and then the game would start at, at one o'clock Eastern and, and we'd watch it together. And like, it, I felt like I was like, you know, hanging out with them and like, you know, which was really fun to me. And so even though we went 0-16 this year, I like felt this attachment to the team because it was like this family connection that I had. And then like when you when you draft Matthew Stafford and like seeing him like fight through injuries his first couple of years and 2011, like him and Calvin Johnson, like lead the team to the playoffs. He throws for 5,000 yards. And even though they end up losing that playoff game, like it was just so exciting to be in the playoffs and like to play on a, you know, a night game where everyone was watching us and, and then going to school and like talking about it with my friends was like kind of the journey that I went on. So like really started as a family thing ended up being like, it was, it's like, me and my high school friends are still connected like five years after we've graduated just because we talk lions all the time. Like that's really what's made it special for me. That's what it's about. Family and friends mm -hmm. watching a good ball game. I, I remember that first playoff game that Stafford, I think you guys were at new Orleans mm -hmm. and that was yeah. the, the game where they put like two people on the line of scrimmage to guard <laughs> Calvin Johnson. Like I've never seen that before. And they did that. So it was just, it was mad respect for one of the best wide receivers in the game. Uh, a lot of good memories. Definitely. Now we're going to transition into the around the NFL section. We got a few games to talk about. I know that, uh, being a Matthew Stafford fan, you actually have some ties now to the Los Angeles Rams and you found the Eagles game uh, very interesting. What were some of the highlights you took away from that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was watching this game uh, the majority of the time in the afternoon slate after after Lions Panthers. And you know, I thought this game was really interesting because you kind of saw the Eagles defense and we talk about like NFC uh, totem pole here you saw the Eagles offense like really come to form here and play like they played last year when they ended up going to the Super Bowl. The Eagles got off to a slow start to the season, but these last two weeks, they've, they've really started to put it together on offense. Um, you know, they had, they had a really good EPA per play in this game, really good success rate. But was, what was really impressive to me was they showed that they have an answer other than AJ Brown. Dallas Goddard was their leading receiver on the day from, from an EPA perspective, I think also from a yards perspective. So now you can start to see the Eagles of last year where they can beat you in so many ways. It's DeAndre Swift on the ground. It's Jalen Hurts on the ground and through the air. Uh, AJ Brown games, Devontae Smith games, Dallas Goddard games. Like that's what was, was, uh, stood out to me was like, this could be the team that competes with the 49ers in, in our NFC because they have the, the different ways to beat you. It's not, it's not just one path. And Sean Desai is the uh, defensive coordinator. I know that you were a big fan of his when he uh, was with the Chicago Bears. And I think he was with Seattle as like more of a uh, assistant. Um, what do you think the evolution of that defense is going to look like as the season progresses? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I think I think Desai is doing a great job there. I think a lot of the games early in the season were him scheming up uh, advantages for his defense, um, especially with a depleted secondary that was that was pretty injured. But what like was interesting to me in this game with Desai was he realized that he had such an overwhelming advantage in the trenches. His defensive line is top five in the NFL. Rams have probably a bottom five offensive line so Desai kind of didn't have like I think he understood he didn't have to do anything special he could just unleash Jalen Carter and Hassan Reddick and Jordan Davis and they just dominated the Rams up front especially in the second half and and took advantage of them in that sense 
Well, well, that's what stood out to me was the Eagles D line. The way Carter was moving around with, uh, mm -hmm. like you said, Reddick on the outside, kind of reminded me of a couple years ago the way AD was moving around with uh, Leonard Floyd and Von Miller, Greg Gaines. Just the way Carter was destroying double teams and uh, really wreaking havoc on Stafford. Talk about uh, wrecking havoc. The uh, Jets defense kind of kept uh, Russell Wilson in check this past Sunday. Uh, Sean Payton has to kind of shove a sock in his mouth for the second time already this season. Uh, this is one of the games you wanted to talk about, Jacob. What were some of the uh, points, uh, pointers that you took away from it? Well, indeed, I wanted to talk about it because last week our during our take section, I said, you know, Zach Wilson after that game versus the Chiefs, that's going to spur him forward to not be the 35th best QB in the league. He'll just be like the 28th best. And that's kind of what happened. He he wasn't consistent, but he did have some great throws. He hit uh, Garrett Wilson on that deep one. I think it was middle of the third quarter. And he did enough to not lose the game for them. Now, granted, the their defense, like you said, defense and special teams was really the reason they won. But... They, they really, uh, they broke, I don't think they broke through. They did what they needed to. And I think the evolution, I say it in, in quotes, evolution of Zach Wilson to be a competent bad QB instead of like the worst QB that's going to ruin games for you. I think that's going to be enough to keep them in games until either Rodgers comes back because I, I, he says he's coming back. I don't know about that one. Or until they get Tannehill or Kirk Cousins, which is what they should be doing. What would a uh, trade compensation look like for Kirk Cousins? Are we looking at like a day two pick? Are we looking at a couple day three picks? What what are we feeling would be a, a fair price for Kirk Cousins? That's a tough one. I mean, this is his last year of his deal, right? So it's it's not like they're on the hook for anything else. And I believe they owe the second, right? Because the first isn't going to convey for the Rodgers deal. So maybe like a like a third or like a fourth this year and a third in the 25 draft or something. But I don't know. It, like it, it's clear that Wilson's not the guy to take them on a playoff run, but he's good enough to keep them in games where their defense can win them the game. Like in a game like with the Broncos who have one of the worst defenses in the league right now. Speaking of worst defenses, they play Patrick Mahomes on Thursday night. Are we, we expecting a 50 burger then or do we think Vance Joseph can whip up something on a short week? I don't know. They gave up 70. So <laughs> yeah, we, we could be seeing 80. You don't know. Absolutely. Now, somebody that was let down by I, his supporting cast on offense was Lamar Jackson uh, this past week. He had Rashad Bateman drop passes. He had Mark Andrews drop passes. He had Zay Flowers drop passes. Didn't matter. Mm -hmm. He was throwing dimes. They were dropping the balls. I, is this something that's going to continue on for the Ravens or is this something that they can fix uh, throughout the rest of the season? Because the loss against the Steelers was definitely disheartening, especially when it's a divisional game and you lose a heart wrencher against the injured Kenny Pickett. Oh yeah. I can, I, I, I saw a decent amount of this game here. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like the Ravens play this game so many times where it's like, it like will flash up on like red zone or, or something like occasionally. And then just like some weird stuff will be happening like a black punt or like a, you know, some, some type of um, defensive touchdown or something. And like, that's kind of what happened again in the Steelers game where it's like, as long as, as you have Lamar as your quarterback, you're going to be in almost every game because I think he gives you such a high floor and like the receivers that, they have tried to give him should raise that ceiling but 
it, it worked for the first couple of games of the season and obviously didn't work in this game. So like, I still think that, you know, the Ravens should be pretty good going forward. Their defense is always going to be really good uh, with, with the talent that they have there and, and Mike McDonald's scheme. But I think it's it's a little bit worrisome to see a supporting cast let down Lamar Jackson so badly in the game that he played well in. Yeah, I thought Lamar was outstanding. Uh, one of one of his better games, the stats may not reflect it, but I think PFF also graded him as his highest performance this season. And I think it was the second highest QB uh, rate grade this past or this whole season. He, he was out of his mind. It's just everybody was dropping passes like mm-hmm. Zay Flowers, like 50 yard bomb turns around and just falls backwards instead of like adjusting to catch it in stride. I think Bateman, Mark Andrews dropped touchdowns in the end zone. You had Aguilar, classic Nelson Aguilar dropping the deep bomb, that which would have been a touchdown. So it's it's really disheartening. And I believe they were leading 10 to 3 for most of the game, right? So it, this was a game that they were in control of. But then, just like you're saying at the end, just uh, the Pittsburgh defense, kind of like you were saying, the Iowa of the NFL, <laughs> their defense and their special teams just came through at the end. And I, people on Twitter are saying, oh, this is the picket breakout game but this wasn't picket it was that that defense was holding up and delivering them the win i think a a big question mark needs to be placed on todd monken at this point like calling a goal line fade on third down now obviously some of these Mm -hmm. wide receivers lamar is throwing to are wide open and they just need to make plays but it's some of that play calling that you just scratch your head about especially odell like this isn't like mark andrews you have on a 101 that you're throwing that fade to It, it just didn't make sense in terms of play calling in some instances Um, And they don't have the rushing attack they've had in years past, especially under Greg Roman. So you wonder, will that efficiency pick up in those other areas? And if it does, I think this is a team that can be a huge contender in the AFC with teams like Kansas City, Buffalo, and even the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's just stuff they need to clean up and a team that needs to get healthy on both sides of the ball. Well, you talk about the question of does this play color need to improve? I think you can ask that about the Steelers too with Matt Canada. Now they did win this game, but it's not like they were a lights out on offense. And similarly to the Ravens. Now, I don't think they're as talented across the board, but their defense is incredible. And I think their Mm -hmm. offense has enough to where if they had competent play calling, they should be winning games like this. Not, Not like this, like by the skin of their teeth, but winning games like this pretty regularly. It's just uh, it's interesting the the dichotomy of these two teams where both play callers really haven't shown what they need to so far early into the season. Definitely, and I I think like Monken is like get I think he can get the benefit of the doubt because it's still his his fifth game with the Ravens and so many new pieces on that offense like you guys were talking about with Odell coming in as free agent Zay Flowers Nelson Aguilar like I think there's a lot to still figure out for them Mark Andrews missed time at the beginning of the season some stuff like that yeah Matt Canada's offense is is really tough to watch right now uh all, all the rushes that they're doing to Najee Harris that go for like zero yards is is like painful um, you know, you have, you have George Pickens and like, he wasn't, he, he was, he wasn't doing well on contested catches until this game, like this season was, was interesting. And then, you know, there's the rumor that was going around about how Pickett audibled out of a run to, to throw that <laughs> touchdown pass to Pickens, which I hope was true because that would even further enforce Matt Canada's, uh, agenda there. But yeah, I think, I think it's, it's the Steelers offense is much tougher to watch right now than the Ravens offense because of that. 
Well, you talk about audibling out of that run for the touchdown. I saw, I think it was a TikTok of uh, the reaction in the box with all the offensive staff. Everybody's cheering, and Canada's just sitting there looking <laughs> down like that. So, <laughs> any, I mean, it could that could have been the case, but uh, who knows? And speaking of, of teams with high-power offenses, because we've been talking about the Ravens, obviously the Steelers don't have that with Matt Canada and second-year quarterback Kenny Pickett. But the Jaguars and Buffalo Bills faced off in London, and we had some offensive firepower, especially towards the end of the game when Josh Allen, I think, put together a drive in less than a minute for a scoring touchdown. So it's fun to see kind of the AFC getting back into the swing of things in terms of some of that. Um, One question I had was leading up to the game, Aaron Schwartz, now with FTN uh, Network, his DVOA metric Uh, suggested that the Jags weren't good against 12 personnel. Now, when you look at EPA per play, the Jags are really good against 12 personnel. And again, five games into the season, very small sample size. You can't judge a lot of things off of that. But it's very interesting that two of the more advanced metrics were actually at a dichotomy against each other going into Sunday. And the Bills didn't have a lot of luck in 12 personnel on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. And that's a good point to bring up. I think like DVOA and EPA are are pretty uh, correlated most of the time. Um, What's interesting, I think, from his perspective where DVOA is trying to be predictive while EPA is more descriptive is I I think the Jaguars were pretty bad against 12 personnel last year, if I remember right. So so I'm sure he's using some of those priors together. But this Jaguars defense is is one of the better units in the league that like not many people have talked about yet so far. I mean, they they've dominated some some offenses like they held the Chiefs to 17 points in a day where their offense kept either punting or or turning the ball over. Um, Obviously like their performance against the bills was really impressive. Like their run defense has been awesome this year. And, and like you mentioned, like they've been able to stop 12 personnel, which has been other teams kryptonite. Like they've, they've uh, shut that down pretty well. Absolutely. Now with, like you said, they're great against the run. Is there a chance that we see Josh Allen or Trayvon Walker take a step as a pass rusher this year? Because if you want to make a deep playoff run, you got to get to the quarterback. We've seen it with the Chiefs the past couple of years. They've had Chris Jones, uh, playoff Frank Clark. Uh, the year the Buccaneers won, they had a loaded defensive line and could get after the quarterback. Uh, the Rams, even when they made the push, they had Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Leonard Floyd. And you just see all these stacked defensive lines. And that's my biggest question. I think the Jaguars are a great team, but if they can't get after the quarterback, is this a team that can really make a push in January? I think they, I just think they have to. They tra- they drafted uh, Walker number one overall over guys like Aiden Hutchinson, who's looking like a top 10 edge rusher currently in the league. Thibodeau shows signs, but Trayvon Walker's kind of still lagging behind, and I think they really need that from him. He didn't have like an all-time game this past week, but I think he was sufficient in that game against the Bills, and they held the Bills throughout most of the game pretty consistently. It was just at the end uh, – where Josh Allen put together that miracle drive reminiscent of the chiefs drive in that playoff game that they had granted. It wasn't yeah. 13 seconds, but it was like 40 seconds down the field for a touchdown, but it, it was mm-hmm. definitely a fun game to watch. I, I liked, uh, I thought the bills would now granted the Jags did stay in London. I didn't, I thought they left and came back. I thought the bills would have done a better job defensively against the Jags and Trevor Lawrence did have quite a few turnovers, but the Jags were still able to move the ball despite that. Well, 
I think that's where the injuries with Trey White and Matt Milano are starting to add up. We saw the Von Miller injury completely cripple the Bills kind of down the stretch in terms of getting after the quarterback, which we just talked about with the Jags. But Ridley exposed Elam in a lot of one-on-one situations. You had ETN having one of his best games in his career. And obviously, he plays super well in London, did really well last year in London. But it's one of those things that if you have some of these stars on your defense going out, is Sean McDermott going to be able to scheme it up to where you can stop a Kansas City, where you can stop a a Chargers team that has uh, offensive weapons? There are so many teams in the AFC where they can throw so many different things at you. And now the questions I think need to start arising, are the Bills built to sustain that now? I think in, you talked about them losing Matt Milano in this game, and it looks like it's for the year. I think he's having surgery on his leg. If he hasn't already, I, I know he left the game in an air cast. It just didn't look good. They also lost Daquan Jones. Uh, Steve, if you remember, he was a Panther like two years ago. Really good run stuffer on the interior defensive line, and I think him going down early was a big catalyst for ETN's game. And like you're saying, if can they really sustain the injuries to Trey White out for the year now, Milano out for the year now, Daquan Jones, I think it was a torn peck, which I believe is usually a year. All three levels of the defense have pretty significant injuries, and I don't know if they're built to last uh, without those or with those injuries. I'm just not sure. How, how far, what, what's the ceiling in your mind? I know with a superstar quarterback in Josh Allen, you have Stefan Diggs. Obviously, the ceiling's pretty high in that respect. Where do you see this team going now, uh, Tej? Do you think that they can rebound from this? Is this a situation where you try to trade for a Patrick Sertan? Um, what, what, what's the direction? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Jacob was saying there. I, I think that the Bills have gotten really unlucky with injuries these past two and three, year, two, three years, especially on defense. Um, you think about everything that happened to them last year and then what's already happening to them this year so early in the season where they look like they could finally be that that Super Bowl contender that could get over the hump and beat the Chiefs and Bengals and and make it to the Super Bowl. But I mean, these injuries are, are really piling up and I'm with you. Like, I think they should be calling everyone that they can to try to trade for for some some secondary piece right now because that back seven needs it badly without their two best players in, in White and Milano. So if Sertan's available or if another corner pops up uh, that's available for a team that isn't doing well, like I think I think that the the Bills should be making that move because when you have Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs together and healthy, your your Super Bowl window is always open, but it it you know it's shutting more and more by the week with these injuries. Yeah, the margin of error becomes really, really small mm-hmm. in those instances. And that's what leads to my next question is, Sean McDermott, you're down 11-0. Uh, the Jaguars were put in a unique situation where they could go for two on their opening touchdown. He didn't go for two. And I'm, I'm kind of perplexed by that. You would think try to make it a three-point game there. They end up missing the two-point conversion a little bit later in the game. Is that an instance where McDermott would want to have that situation back? I think so because... I think when you're in these types of unique situations, you want as much information as you can get as early as possible. And so that's why I like going for two earlier if the other team did it so that you know what you have to do the rest of the game. That two-point conversion that you know you have to do isn't lingering with you through each touchdown if you keep pushing it off. I like doing it early and figuring out how to game plan the rest of the game and how aggressive you should be to, to get back into the game. I agree. I think he uh, I think he had the Rivera pop up in him 
in that moment, Steve, <laughs> and it's like, don't go kick the extra point. We want to win seven to six. But uh, I agree with that sentiment. I don't know the math on it, but I've always wondered if, because uh, obviously if you get two touchdowns, you only need one two-point to equal out the extra point. I don't know the exact percentages, but I've always wondered, would it be just better overall to go for two, like your first two or three scores? But uh, Well, I yeah, I mean, like on top of that, like when you have a Josh Allen – type exactly, quarterback right? like I, that because like two-point conversions league average wise are, are 48 percent. but when you have a josh allen quarterback or like a you know patrick mahomes like the, justin herbert like these types of quarterbacks like i feel like you should want to go for two more because they're going to give you a higher chance to do it and all you got to do is make one out of two and all of a sudden like it equals out in terms yeah, of the extra points so like you said already a 50 percent chance like you said when you have some of these superstar quarterbacks and who are freak athletes like you have a josh allen mm -hmm. a justin herbert a lamar jackson why aren't you doing it every time so hopefully that changes and uh leading into that since we're talking about coach decisions uh we have a coach talk each week and we're going to start with kind of the coaches on the hot seat um that first one being bill belichick and it seems like an end of an era almost in new england it, it felt that way a couple years ago when tom brady left but the it's coming apart at the seams, a lot of injuries on the defense between Matt Judon and Christian Gonzalez over the past few weeks. And then just a bunch of inept, um, I, whether it's the offensive line, whether it's the play calling, whether it's Mac Jones, it's just, it, it's dysfunctional on the offensive side. And so the biggest question I have for you guys is, is this something where, is this his last year in New England or is there a way for them to pivot moving forward because they have a lot of cap space next year to where they can rebuild around maybe a Caleb Williams or a Drake may if they have a top five pick. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to look at the situation in new England because you kind of have to separate bill Belichick, the GM and bill Belichick, the head coach, right? Like you think about that, that meme where it's the guy like stabbing himself where it's like, that's kind of what's been happening here in new england where it's like bill belichick the gm has sabotaged bill belichick the head coach and the gm version of himself has not been good like you mentioned steve like it's the free agent signings and the draft picks and like none of that has worked out so he's given himself a pretty bad roster these past like four or five years like even brady's last two years there the offensive supporting cast was was really bad and they they rank low in a lot of metrics because of that i still think that from like a head coaching standpoint he's done well because He's overcome this bad roster and like won a decent amount of games. 2019, they had the best defense in the league, an historically great defense, you know, ended up losing in the wild card. 2020 was the COVID year uh, where they had to start Cam Newton and they were doing fine until Cam Newton got COVID and, and you know, that season kind of fell apart. 2021, he takes the quarterback five of the draft class, <laughs> Mac Jones, to the playoffs. They were the one seed in the AFC after 11 games, which I thought was really impressive. And then we've seen that taper off a little bit these past two years. So, uh, you know, like you brought up, like I think GM Bill Belichick is definitely done. Like he shouldn't have any part in rebuilding the roster this year. I still think he's a, he's a fine head coach and I would trust him to be the head coach of my team, but I wouldn't want him making many roster moves for me. I completely agree. Steve and I were talking uh, before we hopped on to record about this exact scenario. If there's a way that they could divorce Belichick from the GM role, but keep him as the coach, I think we agreed that that'd be 
kind of a good system there. He he's been known to bring in good court or like at least acceptable offensive coordinators to work with uh, their his QBs and their strengths. But the way he's built the roster, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, I like his defensive draft choices and uh, defensive free agent signings. Like Judon was a home run. Mm-hmm. Gonzalez was a home run this year after trading down, which was also a big move for Belichick. He, he tends to trade up and take just uh, questionable things. But on offense, like guys like Sony Michelle and Nikhil Harry, these are first rounders, Cole Strange, first rounder. And then the free agent signings on the offensive side of the ball, like Bourne and Aguilar aren't necessarily the, the greatest guys to build an offense. And I think, I think that between that and the antics of last year and not bringing in an actual real offensive coordinator, I know this contradicts mm-hmm. what I was saying, but he kind of just waited until the end and was like, all right, I got to get somebody Let's bring in, let's bring in one of my guys, but he's never called the, he's never called an offense and they really squ- switched up their entire scheme, ruined a year of Mac Jones's development. Whether you like Mac Jones or not, he took him to the playoffs in year one and in year two to kind of go to no real offensive support staff was just rough for him. And I think we're seeing it this year. Like he hasn't taken a step at all, even with an offensive coordinator that he didn't have at Alabama, but every Bama coordinator runs the same system. Nick Saban, they have the same system and they add their own wrinkle to it. So it should be familiar, but obviously Mac Jones isn't sticking to it. And you got to wonder if the stuff last season was worth it. I mean, it's, it's really set them up for failure this year. And maybe they are looking to pivot towards the future with the high cap space, like you said, and the high draft pick, which we can assume is coming now because there are worse offense than we are. It's just, uh, it's, it's tough to see. It's a tough scene. The The Patriots have always been good. Stephen A. Smith kind of coins what we've been talking about is that Robert Kraft really should at the end of this year be like, hey, Bill Belichick, you as a coach, you can stay right where you're at. You're going to have to give over your uh, pretty much general manager duties. And if they they bring somebody in like that, the other thing that I want to see, because the Matt Patricia hiring, everybody kind of dogs on. But if you look at Bobby Slowick, the Texans uh, offensive coordinator right now, or if you even look at Brian Dable. They previously had experience on the defensive side of the ball before transitioning to the offense. They spent time as an offensive assistant first, and that was the step that Matt Patricia skipped. Because the run game last year for New England was really good with Ramondre Stevenson. Mm -hmm. A lot of the issues came with timing on the routes and just how everything was put together cohesively there. There was no quick game. I mean, Mac Jones, there's that famous quote where he's yelling, like, where's the like quick game on the sideline? And you can just see the frustration kind of mounting. So there were definitely gaps in what Matt Patricia could do. And that's where I think Bill Belichick needs to go away from what he's done because he's hired guys like Josh McDaniels, Bill O'Brien, guys that are familiar with the Parcel system, with the Belichick brand. And I think he needs to do what a lot of other coaches are doing now, and he needs to go outside of his tree and find somebody. So like Frank Reich, when he came to North Carolina, he got Thomas Brown from Sean McVay's staff. When he went to Indianapolis, he took Nick Sirianni, who came from Romeo Cronell and Josh McDaniels and some of those guys and had that kind of ideology. So when you have those different ideas in the building, it helps evolve and give your offense a lot of different avenues to kind of tear apart a defense. So that's where I would like to see it go. I don't know if it will, but it would be cool to see. Definitely with you. I think that that was a good point that you brought up that some other offensive coordinators have spelt, spent time on the defensive side of the ball. 
Um, and I, I think that's really interesting because yeah, I mean the Patricia hire like last year never made any sense when it actually happened. And then it, it looked like it worked for the first couple of weeks of the season, especially in the run game, like you mentioned, until it, it kind of fell apart there. And I, I really think like Josh McDaniels ending up leaving for the Raiders job when he could have taken that Colts job a couple of years ago and like and you know had had other opportunities along the way is like what kind of set New England's offense down this road because it was obvious that he had a good rapport with Mac Jones. Mac Jones played well in the McDaniels system. And then they've tried to replicate that for two years now, like you were talking about. And it clearly doesn't work without McDaniels there. So you're right. It is time to go out and look for a new innovative offensive scheme, especially if you're going to end up with a top five pick here and, and end up taking Caleb Williams, Drake May, or, or another quarterback of, of that caliber in a sense where you would want a, a system and a scheme that would fit that quarterback skill set. It'd be the, the classic GM Belichick thing if they had a top five pick and he picked like an edge rusher or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hopefully he's not there to do that. And uh, the next coach we have here is also on the older side. Granted, he just came back to coaching this year. Sean Payton. I mean, obviously he's not going to get fired super early. They traded a first rounder for him, but the early returns are not great. Like we talked about in the, uh, the Jets game. It's another talk shit get hit moment for Sean Payton. Who, granted, he was a part of the media last year. He probably didn't know that any of this was coming back to bite him. But the whole Tua thing and now this, he's taking pretty bad L's. And it, uh, it's just not looking good for him. Yeah. I mean, the issue is, is if you look at success rate, if you look at EPA, if you look at how Russell Wilson is performing, I think it's better than the Nathaniel Hackett offense last year. But the defenses are in two completely different planes. And when I was doing some play caller evaluation over the summer, that was the difference. Evero was one of the top play callers coming out mm -hmm. and going to Carolina. And Vance Joseph was one of the worst in the past few years. So mm -hmm. it didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Rex Ryan has been known to come out and pretty much trash Vance Joseph and the defensive play calling there. And it's just it's one of those things that if Sean Payton wants to keep coaching, especially in Denver, he's going to have to make a change on the defensive side of the ball. Um, for them to become a, a competitive team moving forward. Right. I'm, I'm totally with you. And I don't know if this year for the Broncos was necessarily like about winning, which, which feels weird to say, but I don't know if like every team in the NFL's main goal every year is to win. I think it's a lot of teams goals, but I think Denver's main goal was to find out, can they make an offense work with Russell Wilson at this stage in his career? Or are they going to have to dip into the draft and spend their first round pick on a quarterback? And like you brought up, Steve, like I think the early returns show you can make it work, but it's kind of a grind, right? Like you have to pull out a lot of play calling stops and you have to hope that your your weapons are, are doing well that day. And obviously Russell Wilson's contract is much greater than what a rookie contract quarterback will get you. So I think like the focus from the defensive side of the ball is just not there this year because Sean Payton was so focused on seeing if he could make the offense work with Russell Wilson. But I mean, you're, you're, the Evero pro point is great. Like I thought, Evero had a shot to become their head coach last year based on how well that defense was playing and how, how early that the Hackett uh, firing happened into the season. But, you know, I, I don't think they, they truly considered him as much as they should have. And, you know, I'm sure you guys are pumped that Carolina got him, but you can really just see it's a lot of the same players this year and the scheme has just been awful so far for the Broncos. Yeah, this was one of the better defensive units, I thought, coming into the year. I think in our predictions episode, I said they had one of the best front sevens in the league. And they, mm -hmm. they just looked horrendous. And I, it's all scheme, I think, like you're saying. 
and like you're saying, Evero's a huge boon for us. I'm glad he chose us over the Vikings. I believe those were the two. And he and, even interviewed to be a head coach here as well. So right. like yeah. he, he has the pedigree. So it's like uh, the Broncos missed out there. Absolutely. Now, somebody that I've I've been caught in a little controversy over in Twitter is Mike McCarthy. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm more of a supporter of him and how he's run teams, whether it's been the Green Bay Packers or the Dallas Cowboys. Um, Jacob, though, um, I I know he's got a couple points, and I want to kind of give the floor to him before we kind of discuss this coach. But this is a guy that it, he he put the laurels on his own shoulders by firing Kellen Moore as kind of the scapegoat mm-hmm. and saying, okay. I'm going to be the guy now. And he didn't perform on Sunday. And that's fair. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. It's like not everything or now everything is on McCarthy because it's similarly to Brandon Staley. You can't fire yourself, right? So you had to fire a coordinator. <laughs> but the coordinator you fired coordinated a top five scoring offense. I believe it was a top five EPA offense. Almost every year that he's been there, apart from the DAC injury year where he missed uh, almost the whole year. And then so the onus is completely on you now, like you're saying, to call the plays, to have an efficient offense and all that. But to me, it's a clear, uh, I guess, drop off from the Kellen Moore play calling era like this past week. Now, granted, this was the 49ers, but I saw a tweet and I wanted to bring it up in this episode. Then they gained no first downs in the first quarter. And that hasn't happened for the Cowboys since December of 2019, which was Kellen Moore's first year as a play caller. Remember, he was there. He was their backup QB there for a while. He. I think he retired, then came back the next year as their offensive play caller. Took off ever since. Now, obviously, they're doing pretty good in uh, L.A. But to be able to do that or to not be able to gain a first down and then versus the Cardinals, they didn't really perform in the red zone at all versus a team where the Cardinals are scrappy, but the Cowboys have one of, if not the best rosters in the league. You got you to gotta take advantage of those uh, cupcake games. Uh, like people like to call him. And I just don't know if uh, McCarthy's done enough to warrant him firing the coordinator and stepping up from firing him to like to take the offense even higher. I don't think he's done that so far. And I'm curious your thoughts as well, Tage. Yeah, I, I, I like a lot of points that you bring up. I think on the McCarthy side, I'm a little closer to Steve uh, than I am with you. I think I think the Kellen Moore uh, Mike McCarthy, let's call it a divorce, right? They, they divorce. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's going to be a win-win for both sides. Like when it's all said and done, I think that Kellen Moore was a good play caller in Dallas, but I think that eventually it got stale with him there. Uh, I, you know, I heard from a lot of Cowboys fans that followed them really closely that his play calls were good, but his sequencing was starting to deteriorate. And so I think like going to LA, working with new weapons, new coach and Brandon Staley, I think he was able to get rejuvenated a little bit. And, and you're, you're seeing that with their offensive performance this year. And so then Mike McCarthy taking over play calls, like I thought he was always fine in Green Bay. You know, they passed a lot. They they used Aaron Rodgers well, obviously won the Super Bowl with, with Rodgers. And we saw that through the first four weeks of the season where Cowboys offense was playing at a high level, especially when you look at what they did to the Jets defense compared to what other elite offenses have done to the Jets defense this year. I think the 49ers are just such a buzzsaw on defense that it's going to be hard for any play caller to outscheme them. But you know, I think when it's all, when, when we look back in hindsight, I think we're going to say Kellen Moore did a great job with the Chargers. McCarthy did a good job with the, with the Cowboys. 
Yeah, we've got the uh, – I'm calling it the uh, Steve Play Caller Bowl uh, this Monday night <laughs> upcoming, the Cowboys at the Chargers. Really excited for that one. And I had another question there, but you kind of answered it. It's like kind of which one do you prefer, but I think they're both going to be good in their own right this year. I'm just – I'm a little bit more partial to Kellen Moore uh, as a play caller. But hopefully both uh, both coaches do well in calling their offenses this year. Mm-hmm. I think Tasia's point is spot on. I think Kellen Moore, exactly like he said, is a little bit more creative when it comes to the play designs. He uses motion more than Mike McCarthy. He he designs things to where guys are going to be open more. What I enjoy about Mike McCarthy, and this was something that Mina Kimes kind of broke down a couple of weeks ago after that Jets performance, is that he had timing on routes like perfect on the drop back. So Dak Prescott, he his three, five-step drop back boom balls out of his hands you're moving the chains and that's what you saw even against the cardinals when they had three of their starting offensive linemen out is that they moved the ball fine it was just when they got to the red zone they didn't have a lot of answers and i'm not saying that they miss ezekiel elliott but they miss a player of his type a guy that can always get you three to five yards i know taze you just tweeted about aj Dillon. i think yesterday about how he can always get that like four yards that you need and sometimes having a rusher that can just get those four yards is so critical. And that would allow Tony Pollard to do more of what he did last year and be explosive, be that guy in the perimeter, be the guy out of the backfield that's making those ex- explosive plays for you. So I think that balance they're kind of missing there. But from an aerial attack, I think this is going to be a good offense moving forward. They obviously had a bad mismatch against the 49ers. Uh, Fred Warner was uh, shutting down pretty much all your checkdowns and the zone coverage and uh, how they were manning up against the uh, Cowboys uh, wide receivers, which is really well done by Steve Wilkes, who does have a secondary coach background. And he's really good at making sure that he can suffocate an offense when he needs to. The running back point, I think, is is really good that you brought up there because like I was surprised that they didn't bring in a second running back, especially since Tony Pollard had never handled this high of a workload before and he was coming off an injury. Like you would have thought like a Miles Sanders, David Montgomery type of running back you would have brought in just to make sure Pollard wasn't getting like a 70% rushing share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. want your you want your stars fresh. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And then we have one more. Uh, we kind of harp on him every week the past few weeks, but it's Frank Reich. <laughs> I mean... Obviously, we're, we're not going to fire him year one, and I, I do think this can turn around if uh, maybe he hands the play calling off to Thomas Brown so he can focus on more of the game management type things. I know for whatever reason, we've struggled to get play calls in, which I feel is uh, kind of unacceptable with this caliber of coaching staff, struggle with timeout management, things of that nature. Uh, and all the, all the crazy stuff he said in pressers, but I think if he can take some of the the weight off his shoulders with play calling. I think, uh, I think Carolina can move forward and be successful maybe after the bye when it happens. But as of right now, it's just been a horrendous job so far. Now we're going to transition into the coaches who perform well. And you alluded to this earlier, Tej, but the Jaguars defense is humming and it's been humming kind of since last year under Mike Caldwell's uh, guidance and We've we've talked a lot about this on previous episodes. The Jaguars offense is kind of sputtering out of the gate the first few weeks. And they Doug Peterson isn't the guy calling plays on that side, but the defense is doing their part. They're they're playing above average. They're they're making things difficult for opposing offenses. And he's somebody that I think should I don't know if it'll be this year or the next year, but somebody that could be a candidate for a head coaching vacancy if it comes up. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting because like the Jaguars don't have a overwhelming talent advantage on 
defense like they they've had they've invested in some areas like linebacker and Trayvon Walker like we talked about earlier with the number one pick and, and Josh Allen but like it's not like they have this crazy talented defense and to rank top five in EPA per play this season I believe they were top 10 last season uh with with like a not top 10 talented defense I think has been really impressive for Mike Caldwell uh, and then absolutely Oh, I was going to say real quick, like we talked about, they just needed to be an average, like complimentary defense for the Jags to be good. And I think the the defense has really taken that step and gone further. Mm-hmm. It's just the offense that's been lagging behind a bit to start the year. Yeah. Now, somebody who somehow always seems to win games and don't know really how he does it. He's kind of a magician. He's been doing it since, I believe, what was it, 2007, 2008 when he took over uh, for the Steelers? But Mike Tomlin. I just three and two. I, I know Arjun posted a graph earlier today. It was like the the Dolphins and the the 49ers being super high in success rate, and then way at the bottom with the Steelers. And the Steelers are three and two. They have a winning record. Mike Tomlin has never not had a season with a winning record, or at least a record of 500. And it's impressive. Like kudos to this guy for doing it for almost two decades at this point. Yeah, he just, he gets it done. He, he like it, his players do whatever it takes. Last year, didn't they start what two and six or something like that? Um, yeah. maybe, maybe three and six and then down the stretch, they, they finished, they got the games they needed to win and, uh, they finished with a positive record. They're probably going to do it again this year too, because that's just how Mike Tomlin is and how he gets his players ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think it's, I think he's like, he's bored at this point. He's like, all right, what's the worst offense I can give myself to still get a winning record. And he has the worst offense in the league right now and is three and two. Like it. I don't know what type of wizardry he's able to break out on the sidelines. Like it's it's Snape muttering uh, spells under under his breath, like in a in a Quidditch game with Harry Potter. Like that's what that's what Mike Tomlin is doing to get these these wins right now. It's speaking working. Of a, speaking of a wizard, uh, Kyle Shanahan. <laughs> I know him and Mike McDaniel have been excellent. Whether it's been across the field motions. Uh, same side of the field motions. I, Sean uh, with Sumer Sports did a great breakdown of Mike McDaniel's week one of using Tyreek Hill in that manner and offenses are using all over the place. The the diversity in which Kyle Shanahan is able to deploy his five best playmakers is phenomenal. I mean, he's moving Kyle Juszczyk before the play, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, and you'll have Debo in the backfield and McCaffrey in the slot and it just creates mismatch problems all over the place. And my question is, is there any way defenses are going to be able to slow this down moving forward? Or is this really just a race to the Super Bowl for Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan? Yeah, so I I think, th- and this is something I looked at over the summer, but like I'm so big on personnel diversity, like how often you're able to basically avoid using the same personnel over and over is I think really big. Like Steve, you post a lot of graphs about teams that use different personnel and Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan are so good at not only like using 11 personnel all the time, like a lot of NFL offenses do, they're two of the lowest usages or using two of the lowest usage of 11 personnel this year. So much 12 and especially 21 personnel with the two special fullbacks that they have there in Kyle Kyle Juszczyk and and Alec Ingold with the 49ers and Dolphins. I think we've been so big to them. It's just getting defenses out of base and forcing them into situations they don't want to be in, situations that they build their defense towards, I think has been really impressive. Because of the high variance of football, I don't know if it's necessarily will result in a Super Bowl uh, matchup against 
Kyle Shannon and Mike McGinn. I'd love for that to be the case. I think that'd be a lot of fun from a Super Bowl. But um, I think that they just have two awesome offenses right now that are clicking on all cylinders. Well, we were looking at the uh, the All-22. I think it was the QB school breaking it down between the Niners and Cowboys. The Cowboys have one of the better defenses. Dan Quinn's one of the better defensive coordinators in the league. And we, we were just looking at the stuff they were doing with Kyle Juszczyk on plays, just lining him up in line, then motioning him, and then having him run around and confuse Stephon Gilmore, of all people. They were just going crazy with the motions, having McCaffrey run motions like backwards into the backfield before he runs his choice route. It's just it's bizarre stuff. And I think McDaniel's taking it to an even higher level. Granted, he has like the fastest player in the league, but some of his motions are just bizarre. I think it was mm-hmm. the, it was either week one or week two where he had a different motion for Tyreek Hill every single play that people started <laughs> to copy. It's just crazy what they're doing. And, and speaking about crazy performances, unfortunately, we do not have a 49ers or Dolphins player on this list this week. But kicking it off, uh, we have Justin Fields and DJ Moore, who surprised on Thursday night. I think a lot of people, myself included, had the Washington Commanders not only winning, but covering that game. And the Bears just blew them out of the door, which was wild to see. And it was, I think, everything the Bears fans hoped this year would be with some of the new additions they had on this offense. Yeah, I think that game was kind of ruined my confidence because I was like you where I thought that the commanders were going to win pretty easily. And then when the bears ended up winning that game pretty easily themselves, I was like, all right, I don't have a great read on any NFL games (laughs) right now. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like DJ Moore ranks, top three in yards per out run right now, top five in in receiving yards total. Like, I think that's exactly what you wanted when you get someone like him is Justin Fields completes the 10 yard pass, but can, can you get someone who can turn that 10 yard air yard pass into like a 40 yards after the catch reception? DJ Moore did that multiple times on Thursday night, which I think was huge for the bears. And then it's also like, you're, you were able to see Justin Fields like sustain a high level of passes. Like the Bears passed a lot in that first half, and and you were able to see that. So I don't know if it means a ton for the future. Like I think the Bears are still in kind of like in flux based on what they want to do on offense, but it's definitely more encouraging from from Fields and more than what we saw earlier this season. I also had Washington winning that game pretty handily, but I think looking back at it. What the Bears were able to do versus the Broncos. Now, granted, the Broncos' defense isn't playing well right now. But Fields, four touchdowns. He was moving the ball well in that game as well. Obviously, at the end of the game, that he had the couple of turnovers that ended up losing them the game. But he had a good foundation to start that game. And I think they built upon that and carried it, carried it into the game at Washington on the short week and got the job done. And now looking forward, they're going to play the Vikings, I believe, without Justin Jefferson. The Vikings' defense isn't really great across the board they're a good blitzing defense obviously but i think he can continue fields and the bears offense could continue that along with getting reinforcements back on the defense to kind of propel them to being a better football team i agree like you said i don't think they're going to be a world beater i don't think they're going to compete with you guys for the division or anything but i think that they can be better moving forward seeing fields operate like this from a passing standpoint and not having to run, escape the pocket and run the ball for uh, scores and first downs like he had to last year. Now, another wide receiver we have on here is Jamar Chase. Uh, if you are a fantasy football player, I think DJ Moore had about 49 points. And then I think Jamar Chase had like a 50, 51 point. Yeah. So th- these were guys that just went 
nuts, gangbusters, uh, whatever word you want to use to describe it. But it was interesting. The Cardinals under Jonathan Gannon and Nick Rollis, that defense has been really able to kind of muddy some things from like an offensive perspective. And it didn't look like Joe Burrow had many issues. He looked great. He looked healthy. Uh, that Achilles injury he's been dealing with doesn't, or is it Achilles or calf, calf, calf injury? Uh, that he's been dealing with. And it's just, it was cool to see. This was the Bengals that we've seen the past couple of years and they're looking like they're coming back to life. And who knows, maybe they can make a push down the stretch for a wild card spot. Yeah, you, I, I don't know if the, oh, go ahead, Jacob. Yeah, you, you got it. You're the guest. You got it. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I don't know if the, are the Bengals just going to do this every year where they start one and three and then we like all doubt them and then they turn it on. Cause like, it is starting to seem like that. And they were missing T Higgins in this game. Uh, who I thought had been playing well for them this year, even like the, the, the stats weren't there. Like I, I thought T Higgins was, was being a good receiver for them and like not having him, uh, you know, you're dealing with Joe Burrow's injury. Like people started to talk about the Cardinals winning this game. Like the game was in Arizona and then like the Bengals reminded uh, all of us, like how explosive they can be when they, they put it all together. And I think we're going to see more of the Bengals against the Cardinals than the previous Bengals for the rest of the season as everyone starts to get healthy here. Yeah, that was exactly the point I was going to make is that they did this without T. Higgins, who had been doing pretty well this season. It's just Jamar Chase finally had the game where he and uh, Joe Burrow were connecting. I think uh, before the season when Burrow sustained the injury, Jamar Chase said, as long as he comes back by week five, we're good. I don't need him any time before that. And he must have known how long it would have taken Burrow to recover because, man, Burrow was looking mobile, as mobile as he can be out there. And he, he was hitting Jamar Chase open on like every play for they, they weren't pressing Jamar Chase at all. They were just kind of letting him roam free. And it worked out for him. They got a pretty dominant win. And like you're saying, they start 0-2 or 1-1 every year in the Burrow and Zach Taylor era. And they're just going to take this and keep rolling and be an 11-win team. And there's nothing we can do to stop him, it seems. Now, another guy who is a wide receiver, but he is a fast running back. He might be, I, I think he's faster than DJ and Jamar Chase if they were to run the 40 uh, side by side, is Devon A-Chain. And on 11 attempts on Sunday, the man rushed for over 150 yards and a touchdown. And he's averaging over 12 yards a carry on the season. Now, he is out with an injury, and that kind of explosiveness lends itself to uh, more susceptible injuries. Uh, but this is a guy that adds another element to this Dolphins offense. Uh, how paramount is his health going down the stretch, especially when we're looking at games in December and January where teams lean a little bit more on the run game? If I can take this one, it's bizarre to think about a, a guy this athletic and this fast. He's probably like the fourth fastest guy on the Dolphins, right? I mean, you have Moster, Waddle, and Hill. But like you're saying, 12.1 yards per carry. Is insane. I was looking at the rushing leaders because a Panthers fan posted how all look at what McCaffrey's doing, and it was like McCaffrey's number one rusher, 500 whatever yards, 90 carries. Devon A Chain, I think it's A Chan, number two. He's like 60 yards behind uh, McCaffrey. So, oh, okay, he's done it on 38 carries. <laughs> It's just absolutely insane. And like you said, he does have that injury. He's playing a bit on the smaller side. I think he was in the 170s uh, at the combine during the draft. So he was always uh, an injury risk just based on his body type mm -hmm. and the position he plays. But the, the ability that he's able to get in the open field and run past people, it's like having Tyreek Hill in the backfield. And like you're saying, I, 
I don't know if he's like tandemount to their success down the uh, down the stretch because they get Jeff Wilson back soon, mm-hmm. and the way that uh, the Shanahanian coaching tree is able to deploy their running game, I think they're able to sustain not having one of their guys. But having him, I think, makes them all the better because of his ability to take any run and just convert it into a touchdown, as we've seen. Definitely, I I am the president of the Rashad Penny fan club so i know what it's like for a super explosive running back with you know that shows up highly in all metrics off small sample size to get injured so i'm i'm feeling that right now with the a chain injury but you're right like his explosiveness has been insane this year and like what i think is like kind of being under discussed is he leads the league in successful rush rate as well so like when you just look at like how often he's generating a positive EPA on a rush, like he, he's doing that better than DeAndre Swift and Christian McCaffrey and some of the other top running backs from this season. So the, the combination of how often he's been able to get like six, seven yard rushes plus that explosive 70 yard touchdown that's happened basically every week has just been insane for me to watch. Yeah, he's a super fun player. I think, uh, Steve, I think you tweeted, uh, are we seeing Rashad Petty 2.0 or something of that uh, nature the other day? I did. Yeah, it was, um, I think Tej had posted, it was the Sumer Sports uh, shot, and it was pretty much how efficient, like what you've been talking about with success rate that he's been. And like you said, in a small sample size, that was Rashad Penny for so long. And to kind of see that now with Devon Achan is is fun to see um i will say now we're into uh one of our final sections but it's the mvp watch and we try to keep this the three guys we'll have a couple honorable mentions but the first guy that i think is kind of solidifying himself and he's been on this list the past two weeks is tua um he's done phenomenal in mike mcdaniel's system uh he had a couple picks against the giants on sunday um don martindale uh was able to kind of confuse him a little bit and after those interceptions, uh, Mike McDaniel just kind of shut Tua down and just leaned on the run game. But his statistics, I think through the first five games, he's broken the Dolphins franchise record for most passing yards. So to see him on pace to break some of Marino's records is pretty cool to see. And I think if the team ends up winning, like, say, the number one seed in the AFC, uh, he has a good shot at winning that MVP. So I think it's it's really interesting. And, like, Steve, I mean, you do such a good job of – like play caller, quarterback, like separation and, and all that stuff. I think that we're getting to the point where we need two different quarterback rankings. One is like how well you execute the system that you're in. And then two is how well you would execute like all systems in the NFL. And so Tua, and I think we're going to talk about some other quarterbacks later here is like, they're really good at doing that number one spot. And like, we easily can measure that based on any type of efficiency metric. And you're right. Like Tua is, is going to be top three in, in total EPA when he finishes the season. The Dolphins have a have a chance at getting the number one seed. Like both of those things in combination would probably get him MVP. Yeah, I'm now. right there with I'm right there with you. I think uh, Tua and the next guy are kind of neck and neck, but I think Tua's ability to operate the system at such a high level to like guarantee success for his team kind of pushes him over the top for me. Another guy in the AFC East, and when they faced off two weeks ago, it was a beat down in the favor of the Buffalo Bills. But Josh Allen, I mean, the guy's got a cannon for an arm. When that offense is clicking with Ken Dorsey, they hit those easy buttons. And whether it's spamming Stephon Diggs, 
leaning more on the run game now that they've added a little bit more to that. We haven't seen a lot of Damian Harris, but second year back, James Cook has looked really good. I, I was really excited about the Osiris uh, Torrance edition and the Dalton Kincaid. They just got bigger and more versatile. And I think that's going to help down the stretch as they open the playbook up more. I'm with you. I think Josh Allen is going to be in the MVP conversation the whole season. It really just comes down to if he's going to have one of those three turnover games on a national television spot or at like Sunday at one o'clock is, is going to be the difference for him because the perception of him after that first Jets game uh, was was wild. Like people were, were saying some crazy stuff about his ranking in the, the quarterback landscape. And then he rebounded really well these past couple of weeks, you know, weird game in London, but was playing at a super high level the, the three weeks before that. So I think, again, like he's another guy that's going to show up really highly in efficiency metrics and, and someone that is going to be involved in that number one seed in the AFC. Yeah, from a talent perspective, he's always going to be up there in the top three QBs. And like you said, it's just the the one game where he has the, the hero ball moment. It just depends whether everybody sees it or nobody sees it. But as long as he's there and healthy and operating, the Bills are always going to be good. And it's just a matter of who gets that top spot, because I think we are going to see some Mahomes voter fatigue at some point. So it's just going to be like between mm-hmm. like Burrow, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts, Tua this year, Justin Herbert, uh, Trevor Lawrence. And yes, he's got some good QBs, but uh, just in the future, which one of them shows out the most, I think is going to compete with Mahomes for that title. I think the way Tua is operating this year, it's probably going to be him. He's, he's definitely the front runner or one of the front runners. Now, a guy that's gotten more traction, especially after the Sunday night game, is Mr. Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant of last year's draft. And a lot of people want to crown him as that, but I think really that offense runs through Christian McCaffrey. And if there is going to be an MVP candidate coming from the 49ers, it should be. The guy's on pace to have over 2,000 scrimmage yards, close to 2,000 rushing yards alone, and this man's going to probably end up with 20-plus touchdowns. And when you do that with probably one of the best teams in the NFC, that puts you in conversation, just like Justin Jefferson was last year with the Vikings. So that's a guy that I think could be under the radar if some quarterbacks kind of underperform uh, towards the end of the season. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do with the label of McCaffrey, because like, I think there might be a group of people that says like, Oh, a running back can't win MVP because they're running back. But like, I don't necessarily consider McCaffrey a running back. Like he's more of just like an offensive weapon in a sense where he can line up in the slot as often as he lines up in the backfield. And he has been the engine of that offense so far. He's had like two or three blow up games at this point. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see how much credit the awards can divide amongst the 49ers offense where if you give Kyle Shanahan coach of the year and there's some consideration for Brock Purdy for MVP if they get the one seed and he leads the league and and total EPA is McCaffrey going to get offense player of the year is he going to be the one that gets MVP from the 49ers that's what I'm really curious to see from the the award sense we haven't had a non-QB win the MVP since Adrian Peterson in 2012 right Mm-hmm. Uh, was, yeah, was it 2012 or 2011? Yeah. yeah. I think it was 2012. Um, yeah. 2012, yeah. I think, uh, I think we can all agree that the award has moved towards uh, who is the best QB on the best team or something of that nature. But I really do think McCaffrey is the engine, like you're saying, Tej, driving that offense. Uh, since they got him undefeated, except for the playoff game, where they, they were dealing with a little bit of injury in that game. He's had a touchdown in, I believe, 15 straight games now 
or uh, four, 14. I think he needs one more to tie the the OJ Simpson record all time. Two more to break it. Already shattered Jerry Rice's record there. On pace, like you're saying, Steve, to have more than 2,000 rush yards alone. Probably closer to 2,500 scrimmage yards, 20 plus touchdowns. Like we're we're looking at something like a Ladainian Tomlinson type season from them. And if they're able to get the one seed, then he absolutely deserves the consideration. But like you're saying, I don't know if he'll get it because nowadays it is the QB award. So it's, it's going to be really tough there. But hopefully he's the guy that gets the love there. I know we're both big McCaffrey fans uh, since he started his career here. Back in 2017. Now, Panthers, uh, grass isn't as green as it was back then. We face the Miami Dolphins on Sunday. Now, granted, a guy that we talked about in best performances, Devon Achan is out for this week, but Tua, that MVP front runner we were talking about, he'll be throwing the ball to Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle, and with our secondary banged up as it is, I I don't think the Carolina Panthers are going to do much to stop Miami in Miami. I think the biggest hope is to get out of there with a like a ten point loss, like that that would be a win in my opinion. If we we can keep this from getting out of hand and just keep it competitive, I think that would be a win going into the bye. I think uh, I saw something similar to this earlier on Twitter. Remember the game with Teddy Bridgewater against the Chiefs where it was a 35-33 game, I believe. It was like a field goal difference game. We went as heavy underdogs, like two touchdown underdogs, and made it close. I think that's the kind of game that we want to hope for here. The Dolphins' defense isn't by any means the best in the league. I think this is a good opportunity for Bryce and Frank Reich to get the offense clicking. But uh, at the end of the day, they just they have too much. If – if normal teams are going to struggle against them, our banged up uh, defense and kind of defunct offense, I think, aren't going to do well. Uh, you, you have any thoughts on the the Panthers versus Dolphins matchup, Tej? <laughs> well, I thought you were going to bring up um, the Lions-Panthers from, I want to say 2020, the P.J. Walker 20-0 to mm-hmm. game <laughs> for a second. So that's that's your truly, like, you never know. Like, you, you never know what's going to happen in the NFL. But I mean, I, I agree with a lot of the stuff you guys said there. Like there's, unless you have a truly elite, talented, uh, well-schemed defense, like you're not going to stop the Dolphins offense. You're right though. Dolphins defense has been underperforming pretty, pretty badly this year. Um, thought they were really talented coming into the season. So I think it would be encouraging if the Panthers put up some points and you can start to feel better about that side of the ball. I think the, uh, I think the loss of Ramsey, during the preseason right. kind of hampered what Vic Fangio wanted to do with the back end of that defense. Uh, when they get him back, hopefully things will improve. But yeah, I think this is a chance to finally try some stuff on offense, maybe some exotic stuff, get different players involved. I know Frank Reich said he forgot that a player needed snaps this past game. So that's awesome. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully like we can get some stuff going to where we have encouragement going into the bye week. That's my main goal this uh, mm-hmm. this week. I'm not going to be uh, too optimistic and hope for a blowout win or anything for us. And and with that, I, I would say the the closing point I have on that before we, we head into the college uh, weekend uh, recap is really like how does our offensive line hold against their defensive line? Because the, the Miami Dolphins defensive line came alive against the bad Giants O-line last week. And if Bryce can't be protected, it's going to be a long day. But if they can hold up against a Miami defense that has underperformed, I think Adam Thielen will be open. I think we can get some stuff to Hayden Hurst and, and we can move the ball. And so, like you said, we just need something to kind of hang our hat on and be excited about going into the bye. 
and to see that on offense would be amazing. Now, guys that could potentially be future Panthers, I'll let you take this section away, Jacob. You're the college expert, and Tage, if you want to chime in, you guys probably know these players better than I do. Um, I know you wanted to highlight the Washington State-UCLA game first. Yeah, one of their uh, defensive linemen, uh, I think it's Lietu Latu. Uh, I, don't, I hope I'm not butchering that. He just really dominated the Wazoo offensive line. Mm -hmm. uh, Washington State was undefeated going into this game, one of the undefeated Pac-12 teams. And Latu really just inserted himself and made them make mistakes. And uh, I think they forced three turnovers in the second half. Um, and that, that really contributed to the UCLA win there. Uh, another guy I wanted to look at was Olu Fashanu. A, uh, a Michigan player. Uh, yeah, Michigan. No, no, no. Uh, excuse me. Penn State player. My fault. Penn State, um, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, I got him mixed up with another guy. But he uh, he should have gone to the draft last year, came back, was one of the uh, the better offensive linemen this year, and continues to assert himself as o OT1 going forward this year. Him and maybe Joe Walt from Notre Dame. And then uh, some Bama bias here. Jalen Milrow, I think, finally had the best game of his career. Just uh, mm -hmm. f dominated in the passing game because I think Texas A&M, we know, has probably the best D-line or one of the best in the country. They're really good at stuff in the run, and they made Milrow throw the ball. He had his first 300-yard passing game and uh, got the win through the air, so that was encouraging to see. Do you have any guys you wanted to point out uh, this past weekend or any college standouts you've liked to see this year so far? Other than we kind of know like Caleb Williams, Drake May, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., Brock Bowers. But uh, any any of the guys that you're looking at under the radar guys or guys you want to see as Lions potentially this uh, in the next season, this upcoming draft? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a huge Xavier Worthy guy at Texas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and it kind of feeds into me, me liking Quinn Ewers as well, where I think like, I mean, they're not necessarily going to be top like 10 top 15 picks in the draft. But I think if you're looking for, for value later in the draft at premium positions, I think Ewers and Worthy have had like shown a really good connection this year. And I, I like Worthy a lot as like that type of, you know, late first round, early second round wide receiver. I think he could be really, really good. And then I see on this doc here, uh, you have Luther Bur Burden uh, <laughs> yeah. from, from Mizzou, who's not draft eligible this year. But he is so good this year, uh, you know, with um, with Brady Cook there at Missouri, you know, obviously another crazy game against LSU this past weekend. And, you know, I wish he was draft eligible this year, but I think a lot of people are going to be watching, you know, maybe other prospects uh, that were playing Mizzou this year and during draft season and be like, wow, who is this Luther Burden guy that keeps cooking yeah. all these defenders in the SEC this season? He was like that as a true freshman last year, too. So mm -hmm. it's going to be super encouraging to see what he does last year. You brought up Xavier Worthy. I am, like, infatuated with both him and Adonai Mitchell uh, in mm -hmm. Texas. They're probably both going to end up as top five receivers for me. Just suit both uh, super explosive. A.D. Mitchell's a bit uh, bigger. But they know how to get open, both good body control. And they're, just, they're necessary for any type of team, especially the Panthers, who lack explosion. And on that note, uh, I, I really like the receiver talent as a whole in this draft. Obviously, we have uh, Marvin Harrison Jr., uh, Keon Coleman, FSU, and then guys like Troy Franklin, Oregon, th both of the uh, Washington guys, both the Texas guys we talked about, even Johnny Wilson, another FSU guy. Yeah, There's, there's a ton of uh, – he's just an athletic freak. If, if, he, uh, if he knew how to catch, he'd be like a top five pick. But uh, – this is a really good receiver class, and it's encouraging for a team like the Panthers that needs wide receivers. I, I wrote here, too, uh, 
Tez Walker, UNC, this was his first mm-hmm. game after that uh, weird transfer ban that he should never have been banned in the first mm-hmm. place because he met the deadline. That's just more uh, NCAA buffoonery there. But uh, it's a really encouraging wide receiver year this year. Even Jermaine Burton from Alabama, who yeah. wasn't even great last year, but finally coming on as a senior. He'll probably be a senior bowl favorite. I know Jim Nagy uh, tweeted about him the other day, so you know he's going to be big at the senior bowl. But a really good college football weekend, and we got another good weekend this week with like Washington, Oregon as the uh, the head matchup. Yeah, yeah, Burden was good in that that Texas A&M game. Uh, like you mentioned, like taking advantage of that back seven so you didn't have to worry about the defensive line. And then like a, a sickos receiver I have this year since you mentioned the class being so deep, Torrey Horden at Colorado yes. State. I yeah. think he can be really good. <laughs> I'm very excited about him. Yeah, I'm excited he and Travis Hunter uh, made up. Like they, went, yes. they uh, took a picture and went bowling or something. Yeah, good to see, good to see. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, Travis Hunter is another one like like Burden that we were talking about earlier. Where man, it'd be so cool if he was draft eligible uh, this year. But like, it's also going to be electric to have him back in college uh, for one more season. Like a player that's truly playing both ways. Like we just don't see that that much anymore. And you can you've really seen his impact on both sides of the ball for Colorado these past couple of weeks. Not having him there, I'm interested to see at the next level what he does because I I think he's obviously a better corner than he is a receiver. Mm-hmm. But receivers make the money, right? So right. it depends on what his agent said. Like, he could probably be a first-round receiver if he continues his track at uh, Colorado. It looks like Shador is going to be back. Uh, Shador Sanders is going to be back next year based on what uh, Coach Deion Sanders is saying. So if they can keep that rapport up and get his numbers up, he, he could potentially be a first-round receiver as well as being the top corner in his class as well. <laughs> and, and a Heisman candidate. If he were still playing, he'd be uh, up there for the Heisman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So we've we've talked about a lot of great things on this episode uh, between the Detroit Lions games, talking around the NFL head coaches, and we're we're wrapping things up. And this is uh, called perfect takes. So obviously we got to throw a couple takes out there before we wrap up. And mine is is that the 49ers, their first five games of the year, have scored no less than thirty points in all of their contests. They go up against the Cleveland Browns team that has had a bye week and has probably one of the better defenses in the NFL. I think this defense holds the 49ers to under 25 points on Sunday. Jacob, you have any good takes for us as we wrap up? I like that one. Uh, this is kind of a, a tangential take. Even if the Bucks don't win, they have the best jerseys because they have the creamsicle jerseys. <laughs> that's that's the only re- – if you look at the doc, that's the only reason I picked them just so I could see the uh, – the creamsicle cell shade right here. But my perfect take is that the Chicago Bears build on what they've done the last two weeks and get a division win against the Minnesota Vikings without Justin Jefferson. They keep rolling. I think they're I think Fields is finally gonna be locked in as a passer within his current system and not gonna have to rely on just escaping all the time. Not bad. And now Tage, you're our guest. We gotta get a take from you before we uh, get out of here. <laughs> Those, uh, those are going to be tough to follow up here. I love the creamsicle on the dock, by the way. I'm, I'm just looking at that color right now. I'm a little distracted by it. But let me <laughs> let me go with, I think that this, after what we saw from Sam Howell last week, I think we see a, a massive Sam Howell bounce back 
Um, I know his stats ended up being okay last week because they passed so much in that second half. But I think this game against the Falcons is going to be like a Sam Howell 300-yard, three-touchdown day where you really start to see McLaurin and, and Dotson and, and uh, the receivers that they have there get going. As a Justin Fields and Sam Howell fantasy owner and a 2QB <laughs> league, I hope both of our takes come true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is a Sam Howell get right game. He, he took a lot of bad sacks uh, against Chicago, mm-hmm. but now with the extra, like almost a week and a half now at this point, I think that extra time to prepare, like they're, they're going to be firing on all cylinders and it's, it's going to be, it could be a shootout. I, I would love a shootout yeah. in Atlanta this Sunday. That would be a lot of fun to see. Yeah, and Jacob, that's the great thing about being a Sam Howell fantasy owner. I am as well. Uh, where it's like the sacks don't count against you. (laughs) That's not a thing in fantasy. So it's like Sam Howell's going to maximize your fantasy points because it's either sack or 20-yard pass for him. Like, And he's just going to keep doing that over and over. So I love having him in fantasy. He's going to get you your points. Don't worry. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, uh, thank you so much, Tej, for being on this week's episode of Perfect Takes. Uh, We'll catch you guys next week, and hopefully we'll have better news after the Dolphins game. Uh, But for us... We're out.